Good morning. Our scripture text this morning will be from the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel. I'll be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 886. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. It's a good to be here this morning. Uh, we do um, spend about six months a year here, and so it feels a little bit like home. Um, in the off-season, uh, Dave is on my playlist, so usually... Uh, Monday morning before I start work, I've listened to the sermon as long as it's up. So I never feel like I really leave uh, Sovereign Grace, or I'm sorry, Grace Baptist. Sovereign Grace was a church I hit, so. Um, so I was excited to come down today and uh, be with you guys. Um, we saw Dave at Handel's Messiah on Friday as well. I think some of you folks were up there. Um, <coughs> so. Um, I have been enjoying Dave's series on Malachi as well. I thought, you know, what a great little series as we work our way through the Advent season. Um, and then I got to thinking when Dave asked me to come here today, I started thinking about the Advent. And what, do we, what do we mean when we say Advent? The Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. I don't know about you, but every time I ask myself a question like that, I'm sorry, I'm just going to time this here to make sure I don't take you guys to dinner. Um, <coughs> every time I hear a phrase or some theological word, I always want to look it up, and I want to get the definition down first, and then I start to try to understand it. And so when I was thinking about the Advent this year, um, I'm going through some things with my sons. Uh, Joshua's here, Josiah's working today, but uh, we're going through the Advent. We're going through um, Ryle's book on the Advent, which has been pretty exciting. Um, but the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology explains it this way. It says there's a couple of parts here. Uh, at the Advent is a time of year when the church prepares to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what I would have figured. But historically, it's been a time of self-examination in expectation of his second coming to judge the living and the dead. That part I usually don't associate as much with the Advent. In Western tradition, it begins on the Sunday that's nearest to St. Andrew's Day, which is November 30th, and then it runs every Sunday until Christmas. Um, in the during the Middle Ages and earlier, this time was marked by discipline and fasting. That was a little convicting. What is it, the average American gains eight pounds over the holidays or something like that? So that was a little convicting that 
Historically, the church has used this time for discipline and fasting, watching and praying. So if you're taking notes, um, I hope I don't miss, I just had a little four-note outline. Uh, This would be note one. We can distill this down that the Advent season is a time to be set aside to celebrate the birth of Jesus. It's the first Advent. It's a time of self-examination. And thirdly, it's a time of expectation of his return or his second advent. It's pretty sobering to think about those things. Scripture provides a, a pretty good account of his first advent, it's very detailed. The Old Testament prophecies, which predate the advent itself by centuries, foretell of a lowly virgin birth in Bethlehem, Speaks of great titles like Emmanuel and Wonderful Counselor. We had that passage read this morning. It speaks of great honor, but also great misery, which also was mentioned already this morning. Killing of all of the young boys. The gospel narratives themselves, especially Matthew and Luke, don't just describe the particular birth of Jesus Christ but they fulfill all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, and there are scores of prophecies. And it does make sense if you think about the narratives themselves and the rationale. Matthew was writing to largely a Jewish audience about the Jewish Messiah. And Luke, who was a doctor, was writing about the humanity of Jesus Christ and also was delivering a a political apology. So the details throughout their Gospels kind of underscored the aim of what they were shooting for. But there's another narrative of the advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ. It doesn't speak of the birth in those details. It's kind of more of a panoramic theological explanation of the first advent. It's an announcement of a peculiar kind, very unique. And it is very wise to consider this announcement and it is pregnant with universal human appeal and need. So in the opening passage, these first 18 verses of John, which we've had read to us, the preamble of the gospel itself, the reader is presented with an altogether different and unique look at the Advent story. It's not surprising, really, that John took this route because his gospel stands unique in a host of ways. You know, there's no parables in the gospel of John. I think the Lord gave 43 parables in the synoptics, no parables in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is notedly the Gospel of the seven great miracles, the seven I am's. It's the Gospel that focuses on two words primarily, love and light. And of the Lord himself, in John's Gospel, there's no mention of the birth, there's no virgin birth, there's no Bethlehem, there's no angelic host. There's no direct mention of his baptism or the Lord's Supper. So as you start thinking about the differences there, you wonder why those things are different. Why did John's gospel take such a different route? I think there's a lot of reasons, but we can probably distill this down to just one reason, but it's highlighted in two places. The first place, yes, I am going to open the Bible at some point today. The first place that we find out what John wrote his gospel for, what his aim and target was that we want to look at is right at the end. It's kind of a summation of all the things that Jesus did. He wrote in the 20th chapter, starting in verse 30, he said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So he did a whole lot more than is recorded. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And the second description or explanation of why John wrote his gospel is what we'll work through this morning, kind of the foretaste. These are kind of bookends to the middle of this gospel, to where the meat is. Because we want to work towards the declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ when the word became flesh. We want to be careful with this because in life, familiarity can breed contempt, can it? It can cause us to treat lightly things in our lives that we ought to take very seriously. It can be a marriage or personal relationships. It can be our 
jobs, it can be possessions that we have, and even as Christians, it can be the word of God, can it? So as we work through the passage, we want to try to consider this passage in John's gospel, not as a 21st century Christian that's heard or read this passage dozens, hundreds of times in our lives, but rather as the original audience may have understood it. How might the original audience have understood this? I mean, the question is, how did they process what John was saying? And how should we understand what John is saying about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? So we're going to break this down a little bit into small pieces. Now, unfortunately, we're just going to kind of scratch the surface because this is probably uh, a series of sermons if it wasn't the Advent time. So we're going to read just these first five verses. First, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You notice something that's pretty interesting to me is that the name of Jesus doesn't appear in these first five verses. As a matter of fact, it won't appear at all until verse 17. So John will be using his time in these verses to build an argument in the proclamation of somebody. There will be a progression. There's kind of like this crescendo as we work through this passage that's reached gradually, and we'll see that the intensity will build as he goes down the narrative, which ends in the proclamation of grace and truth and hope. And as we'll see, they will all be delivered in the person of Jesus Christ. So in these first three verses then, John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He says that in the beginning, the Word already was with God. And, in fact, he made everything that was made, and then he doubles down and he says there's not anything that was made that he didn't make. Those are bold claims. Have you thought about that lately? In a world of hundreds or maybe thousands of systems that people can follow. That's a bold claim. I had a friend once. Well, I still have friends, but one particular friend uh, that began to read the Bible. And as it so happens so often, he was recommended by somebody else that he start with the Gospel of John. So sometime after his experiment had ended and uh, he and I were having a conversation about it, um, I think it was when I was preaching at a church and I was actually going through the Gospel of John some years ago. And when I brought that up, he said, oh, I tried to read that once. I said, what would you think? And he said, that guy's crazy. He's insane. He said, who can even follow what he says? And the first thing he talked about was these first three verses. He thought that John was absolutely crazy. So the question is, because it's a bold claim, are these the statements of a madman? I mean, what is John actually saying? You know, one problem with the modern reader, including myself, is that we don't have scripture in the original language. I can't read the original languages. I'm also not really very familiar with the culture and a society that existed 2,000 years ago. So we need to think about these passages in Scripture and work through them slowly. And then there's another problem today. It's compounded because with all of our technology and all of the information at our disposal, we really are not a very thinking people, are we? We live in a time of uh, anti-intellectualism and deconstruction. So there's no doubt that these, all of these points contributed to my friend's confusion, but I don't think that his view was unique, and I think as we work through the passage, we'll begin to understand that a little bit more, because John is in part speaking in a way that most people struggle with, and that is eternal things. He's addressing, however, fundamental questions and concerns that come up throughout the ages and across the spectrum of human existence and experience. There's a lot of depth here. 
as I go through it in 45 minutes. But we want to break this down then, starting with these first three verses. There's two things that we want to come to understand that kind of set the stage. And we're going to spend a lot of time here. So if you're a clock watcher like myself, don't get too nervous. Um, but the, the first two things that we want to look at to begin to understand the foundation that John is laying as he begins to present his argument to a people originally that didn't know the argument. First thing is we see here, he says, in the beginning. And then the second thing we'll look at is that word, word or logos. So when John starts out this gospel in the beginning, it draws one's mind, a Jewish mind of the first century, back to the opening pages of Genesis. And I know you're familiar with it. You can probably recite it. I just want to read these and make sure that we capture this. It says, in the beginning, once again, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And so we learn just in those few verses of Genesis that in the beginning, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was there. And the implication is chaos or disorder. And we also see that the Spirit of God was there also hovering over the face of the waters. And the contrast is drawn almost immediately of light versus dark. God was there, it tells us, before all things because he predates creation and he is eternal. So God was there and then God spoke. And the light came into existence and God called that light good. And if we continued with the narrative, we would see that God then created the heavens and the land and the vegetation and so on. And so there was in the beginning an active word, or you could say there was a word that was active in creation. And then throughout the Old Testament, one prophet after another arose to be an oracle of God, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Joel and so on. And then you remember Job in his time of torment far more righteous than me, but there came a point when he couldn't take it anymore and he pled his case before God and claimed his righteousness. And one of the scarier passages of scripture, because I can be pretty loose with my tongue as well. You remember God responded to Job starting in chapter 38. Well, just, I just want to read a couple of verses. He responded to Job when Job tried to defend himself. God responded by leveling 64 questions back to back to back. Just a couple of those questions as Job was feeling sorry for himself. God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Who shut out the sea with its doors when it burst forth from the womb? And said, thus far you shall come and no farther. And here your proud waves shall be stayed. By the end of these questions, Job said, you know, I really don't have a lot of understanding about a whole lot of things. So we see then that the world was made and ordered by God, that he is intimately and personally involved and active in the world that he created. So to a Jewish mind, the world is, a tie, the world is tied to a concept of Jehovah Yahweh himself and to activity and action and, and, and creative action. So John is therefore introducing, in a sense, a whole new beginning, isn't he? By, the, by first drawing attention to the greatness of that first beginning, but also, and greater still, of he who was there working and creating and sustaining all things. But that's not all. John's appeal was to a much larger audience than those of just the temple worship. It really was universal in their day. The word logos also had a significant meaning to the Greeks. In the Greek mind, it's more of a philosophical term. 
You see, in the 7th century B.C., Ephesus was home to a man named Heraclitus. We may not be familiar with Heraclitus, but he had a great impact on the world. Philosophically, Heraclitus said it's impossible for a man to step in the same river twice. Why is that? Because all of life is in a constant state of change. So if you step into a river and then you step out again, by the time you step back in, the water has flowed down and you're standing in a different river. And such is life, he noticed. However, if that is so, the Greek mind would, have say, would ask, why isn't everything in a constant state of chaos? Their understanding was that the change that we see is not random, it is ordered. And that being the case, they concluded that there must be a divine reason, or what they called a logos, that was in control. And that, Her that logos to Heraclitus was the very mind of God, controlling the world and all men. And so our second note then, if you're taking notes, we can distill this down. I would say that the logos was the order to all things, and you can add, without whom there would be chaos. So this thought permeated all of the Greek schools of thought right down through the centuries into the first century at the time of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the time that John penned this gospel. You remember when Paul was in Athens, he spoke to those about the uh, unknown God. They had a temple that was dedicated to the unknown God because the Greeks wanted to cover all of their bases. You remember Paul pointed that out and he said it's in him that we live and move and have our being. Even, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. What they believed to be the unknowable, impersonal God Paul was declaring to them. Much in the same line as John. The Logos existed eternally then. It was face-to-face -face with God and equal. It had all of the attributes of God. But it did not make up the entirety of the Godhead. So John opened with concepts that were familiar. Actually, let me back up a second here. John has made a monster statement here, um, and I want to help to define this a little bit. In the original language, there was no definite article in front of the word God. So the significance of this is that the word does not by himself make up the entire Godhead. Nevertheless, the divinity that belongs to the rest of the Godhead belongs to the word itself. So again, the Logos existed eternally as God and with God. He was face-to-face -face with God. He was equal to God. He had all of the attributes of God, but he didn't make up the entirety of the Godhead. So again, John is opening with concepts that are familiar to all audiences everywhere. The concept of origin. Where do we come from? Why are we here? What's going on? Who's in charge? And he draws on the imagination of all men too, doesn't he? He articulated, defined, already a specific and unique character, a personage that is God. So my friend, in saying that John was insane, was wrong. The hypothesis is not crazy or illogical. It's very definitively logical. And the message that John was giving, the original hearers here, they were a vulnerable people, weren't they? They were an ignorant people. This was a new message, but Isaiah had spoken of this before. You remember Isaiah said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has shined, on them the light has shined. Now, after God created all things and called them good, as we've already discussed, there was a rebellion or a disobedience in the garden, wasn't there? And darkness once again entered and influenced the world. The darkness blinds men from the order. 
Consider the world that they lived in. It was violent and cruel. It was full of disappointment and also full of a lot of self-inflicted injuries. People made bad decisions. And if we want to generalize this in groups, if you wanted to look at the Jewish nation, they were tormented by Rome and they were crushed under the weight of temple worship. And yet, that same people was anticipating, they were living in expectation of the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. They were hoping for better days. Although they lived in an ordered system, it was awful because it was imperfect. And then if we look at the Romans or the Greeks or the Hellenists or the non-Jews, pick any people group you want, they too lived in an ordered world, but it was imperfect and debauched. It was cruel. It was a world of domination. I mean, the movies lie to us. Life was miserable for the average Roman citizen. The entire system and structure, the legal system they lived under, was designed to support the state, not the individual. Now, if we want to put that in, in modern terms, when we look at countries around the world, how does that work for China and Korea, and how did it work for the Soviet bloc nations? This is the situation the average citizen lived under. So why would we suppose, if it's that way for us, it would be any different for them? Miserable. In fact, if you can pick an era, any era or generation or any people group, where chaos has not taken root one way or another. Every age seeks order. Every age seeks answers to the world around them. They want to order the world around them and control it. So the appeal of John is that he offered the order to all things to the people. The concept of eternal goodness and order. No wonder folks back in the day originally took notice of John's gospel. But you know, we don't need to look back at a distant culture far away to see the effects of a less than perfect fallen world system, do we? Where darkness, the antagonist of light, exists. We don't even need to talk about the chaos in our own society right now. We all know it's there. Each and every one of us, the only thing we need to do is to slow down enough to consider our own hearts and our own desires, our own minds and our own actions. I mean, don't you want order in your life? Don't you want divine order? It's in our nature to desire order. We all do. I mean, at least we used to, right? I mean, we organize our societies through politics and legal systems. We create a, a bureaucratic order. We have social structure and norms that we live by. You're supposed to do certain things at certain times. You conduct yourself a certain way. We've ordered our lives that way, and we all just kind of funnel in and expect everybody else to do the same thing. We attempt to organize our personal lives. We pursue education and career and family to bring some sense of meaning and control. <coughs> Religiously, we organize around legalism and dogma and doctrine, don't we? Tradition, discipline. Maybe we don't. Maybe we just give up. Maybe the corruption of the disordered world around us simply overwhelms us. We see a lot of that in our day, don't we? Mental illness, crime. We just kind of check out. I mean, we might try to escape through sex or drugs or violence or theft, counterculture, secret societies, anything that gives us some monicum of control that we don't feel that we have. Because we did, all of us, we start out seeking order in our lives. I mean, even as a baby, we try to walk and talk to begin to order our lives in the world that we live in. But we all know that things aren't right. So the message of John, again, is not crazy. It is a universal message of reality and hope, of expectation and anticipation. It's a message of order in the midst of chaos. So where do we find it? And that's really the question that John has raised here, isn't it? That's the conversation. 
But John further develops the character and the attributes of this logos. He tells us in verses 4 and 5, this logos that was with God and equal to God and had parts of God, but not all the parts of God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so the definition grows and becomes very personal. In him, the logos, was the light and the life of men. The very life that we depend on. And it makes sense. He made everything. He sustains all things. He produced our lives from nothing. Just like the light and the heavens and the land and the vegetation. And later, manna and fish and bread. In fact, John says, he wasn't just the author of our lives. He is and was and is the light of men, the illuminator of the mind, the very conscience of men. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But, and here's where the story gets a little tricky, a little more relevant for our lives, at least for my life, than just some pie-in-the-sky promise of order and life and intellect John says that the light of all men, our inner being, contended with darkness. The same contention that we saw in Genesis. This darkness then is non-light. It's the antithesis. It's not a creator. It's not a sustainer. It's not an orderer of the world that we live in. It's disorderly, and it's certainly not God. There has to be contention. Right? Because John says that the darkness has not overcome the light. It would if it could. That word that's used here is interesting. As we begin to develop this and, and develop this and, and flesh this out, just from what we learned so far, that word that he uses, overcome, in the Greek was katalabano. And if you know Greek, you know I just butchered that more than likely. But it's the concepts that are important. There's two simultaneous concepts that John is developing with that particular word. And again, it flows with where we're going here. It's to, be, to grasp by force and overwhelm physically and to grasp with the mind. That's the world that we live in. We live in a fallen world with broken order. We are sustained by the logos, but we contend with darkness, don't we? Thankfully, it, the darkness is inferior to the light. It can't extinguish the light. Now, how appealing is that message in the midst of a tough, troubled life? And again, think about the original hearers of this gospel. He's presenting to them something they've never heard before. This is a whole new message. And so it would lead the original audience to ask, who, who is this? Who is the Logos? How can he help me? That's the description of the first birth. The natural man created by God, illumined, but contending with darkness. We know this intrinsically. Our inner man, our conscience, tells us so. I can say that, and everybody can agree or disagree. But the reality is, and God's word says it so much better than me, the reality is, Paul tells us in Romans, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made so that they are without excuse. You remember Paul admits his own personal struggles in Romans chapter 7. There was a tension in Paul's inner man. And he said, the things that I ought to be doing, I don't do. And the things that I do, I probably shouldn't be doing. And what does he say? Oh, wretched man that I am. Do you ever come to the end of yourself and think that for yourself? My goodness, what have I gotten myself into? It sounds great, what John is saying. This opening has a drawing effect for the very conscience of men. It pierces to the division of 
soul and spirit and joints and marrow, doesn't it? It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We can deceive the people around us, but we have a very hard time deceiving ourselves. So anyways, back to our story. John says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. It seems to me, if it's the Logos is, Logos is true, if he, if he came into the world, it would be pretty obvious that he had come. Kind of like the old Ed Sullivan show or some other variety show where they would say, and now here's a man who needs no introduction and somebody walks out on stage and everybody knows him. But maybe not. God sent someone. He sent a guy that, for the original hearers, were able to locate and identify in history, in their culture and society. He was a man of reputation, a peculiar guy. You remember the descriptions of John the Baptist. He lived in the wilderness and he ate weird food and had weird clothes. Very austere. He drew the crowds away from the critics, didn't he? He drew the attention to the creator and the sustainer. The one that was at work who gives life to all men. And they should have recognized John the Baptist for who he was. Because Isaiah spoke of him too. Just read this quickly. I told you I have to look things up so that it sinks into my head. But in Isaiah chapter 40, he talks about John the Baptist. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. Man, doesn't that sound like a great introduction? Romans tells us that the very creation of God groans, groans for the second coming, that Jesus would make things right. And Isaiah prophesies that John the Baptist is announcing the one that will do that. He was wise, having been illumined by the light. He was not the light, but you know, he was so bright that a needy, wanton people thought he must have been the light. He was just the herald. Now, notice that John didn't just live a good life, giving a good testimony that he was nice to people. He opened his mouth and he spoke. James Montgomery Boyce, in commenting on John the Baptist, he said it quite, quite simply but quite eloquently. He said, living well is just pre-evangelism. At some point, you have to open your mouth and you have to speak. So John the Baptist, he spoke, didn't just babble on, he spoke that all might believe. I see John the Baptist as the hourglass of time. I don't know why that is. Maybe I'm supposed to say Jesus is. Maybe that's true. But in some ways, I see John the Baptist as this, this hourglass. All of Old Testament prophecy gets funneled right through John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And then the New Testament begins. He really is the linchpin, isn't he? Jesus said he's the greatest man born of women. So there's two points here when we think about the fact that it should have been obvious because we've already had our conscience pricked. Men are seeking order and light and life so much to the degree, even if they deny it, they went out to see what John was all about and they thought he might be the light. And they were wrong. And so the second thing that we see is that God is gracious. He is condescending to those who sit in darkness. John was but a lamp, but there was, we've heard, a true light. And that idea of true light is, in the Greek, is aletheinos. It means authentic, real, original, not fake, not a reflection it is where all other light emanates from. And the world that he made, he came to the world and it didn't even know who he was. They should have, but virtually all of humanity missed it. But it's worse because the indictment grows. He came to his own people, even his own people, 
missed it. We continue in the narrative, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. They were born naturally without the ability to fully recognize and receive the true light. They sat in darkness and they did not see the light because they couldn't see the light. Second Corinthians chapter 4 tells us that the world, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep from them from seeing the light of the gospel. From, we're talking about the grasping of the mind then, aren't we? The God of this world has blinded our eyes. It, it prevents our minds from processing properly. And I'm sure that you're familiar with the verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, which underscores this. It says that men are born naturally what? Children of wrath. Not a good place to be. They weren't born neutral. Neither are we. We're born blind, children of wrath. But even then there was a remnant. There were some that received him. They believed on him. They accepted who he was in his title and in his person. And it was to those people that he gave the right to become children of God. God's family, intimate and personal. As it says elsewhere that we could cry, Abba, Father. And Paul was right when he was in Athens, when he was speaking to them of the unknown God, that he said that even some of your poets have said we are his offspring. And so man by nature is God's offspring in a way. He creates and sustains them. But that's really only a one-way relationship, isn't it? Until he's received. And then the intimacy and the personal relationship that is two-way begins. And that relationship is not founded on, John tells us, blood it's not founded on a sacrifice that you make or family relations you're not born into salvation it's not based on the will of the flesh by one's own desire or inclination towards god it's not based on the will of man we can't pray somebody into the kingdom of heaven and we can't pray ourselves into the kingdom of heaven we become children of god entered into his family by god himself and of course He's the maker and the sustainer. And so the psalmist tells us he opens the eyes of the blind. He gives us the ability. He helps our mind not to be in the grips of the God of this world. And this is what it is to be born again. A birth that is not by natural means, but by supernatural. We read about this just a little bit, if we can underscore this. A little farther down in John's Gospel, we read, went a little too far. It's a pivotal conversation. John's Gospel tells us a lot about ourselves. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Sounds great so far. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light. We also read in that same passage, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can be spiritual and religious all you want. You can enjoy the word of God and the things of the Christian life in the church. But unless you're born again, you don't see the kingdom of God. Because the God of this world has wrestled your mind and blinded your eyes. 
You see, whether you believe John's narrative or not, the argument's logical, isn't it? It follows a progression. It develops a specific line of reasoning, and the intensity grows and the excitement builds, especially for those first hearers and those sitting in darkness and blind yet searching begin to cry out, who, who is this? Who is the Logos? You begin to recognize your own need. But there's more suspense to come. Because John continues, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as, the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, he, comes after, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So we have the word and now our growing list, the order to all things, the creator, the sustainer, the life and the light of men, the author of the first and the second birth. He came in the flesh. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a mirage. He entered into the domain of man as a man. And that is one of the most defining and profound complex statements you could ever make and consider. That God came in the flesh and dwelt among us. Now, two millennia removed, we are so familiar with this, maybe too familiar. But back then, nobody believed in a personal God. I mean, actually, many people still don't today, even in the church. I'll probably offend some people, and I'm awful sorry. But when we talk about justification, sometimes people will say, no, see, God looked through the tunnel of time and he, 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 he knew who would believe and those became the elect. Then that makes God very impersonal in our conversion, doesn't it? God is intimately involved in all things. He's the creator and the sustainer of life itself, the first and the second. And so when he became flesh, he did not stop being God. And this was the first advent. This is Emmanuel, God with us. He took on manhood while retaining his divine attributes. I mean, consider this message again. In the ears of the original hearers, the Christian worldview didn't exist. The dominant Western culture, you know, predicated on Christian philosophy was 1,500 years in the future. He didn't just take on flesh. He dwelt among us. The concept in the original language, what the, the imagery in the mind of the first century reader would have been that he had pitched his tent or his tabernacle among us. Now consider that phrase, the imagery of a tabernacle. I mean, what would this conjure up in a first century Jewish mind? The tabernacle of the Old Testament, of Moses' day in the wilderness, the place where God's glory was to be found, where the very center of Israel's existence was found where they met with God and worshiped and sacrificed, that residence was called the Shekinah. And that Shekinah would be found again in Solomon's temple. But John says those were just metaphors, symbolism. The Shekinah, the glory of God is here now in the flesh. And they saw it. People put their eyes on it. The glory in a very unique way way, this kind of glory as of a, a best-loved son, somebody's firstborn, the heir of all things. So it is if you're taking notes. He is so full of glory there is no room for anything else, but that glory has basically two byproducts here. The first one is grace, charis, it's the unmerited favor of God towards man. Now we've seen two types of grace in this passage, the first type of grace is common grace. He gives life to all men. And we've also seen salvific grace when we become his intimate children. And then he didn't just have grace giving us gifts that we don't deserve. He wasn't just this outpouring of glory, but he also gave us truth. Wouldn't it be awful if he had all those things and lied to us? 
He brought truth, which you can define that down very easily. It's the ultimate reality. People are wrong when they say, well, that's your reality. Well, that, that works for you. That might be right for you, but it's not for me. No, there's only one truth in anything. We may not always know it, but there's only one. Jesus is the ultimate truth. Just as there is ultimate truth in the natural world, in the physical realm, we understand through the sciences, physics and chemistry, makes the world predictable and orderly, as the Greeks recognized. As we try to order our lives, so too there is ultimate truth metaphysically. Jesus is the embodiment of the ultimate truth. People saw him. The original audience would have been screaming now, who is this? Who is this? John tells us, John bore witness about, oops, sorry. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. The New English Bible translates it this way. That says that John says, before I was born, he already was. Now, the folks, when they find out who he's talking about, they know that Jesus was younger than John. So this guy whom the world rejected never ceased to pour out goodness to us all, like waves upon the shore, just overflowing with goodness in our lives. The predictability of the natural world bears witness to God's character. Wouldn't it be cruel if he didn't give us growing seasons? We never knew when it was time to plant corn. We didn't know when it was time to harvest it. We're always just walking around, stymieing around in the dark, looking for stuff on the ground to eat. He's given us predictability. So God's attributes are known. And it's important to know this, and it's important to share this. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says that it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. People ought to know that God is good. So now the crowd is at a fever pitch. They would be demanding to know right now, who is it? Who is it that I can see his glory also? I need to know who the order to all things is. And here, at the very pinnacle of John's argument, he introduces another contrast. Just to make sure, I think, that there's no mistake. We make this mistake in the church a lot. The Logos is not simply an extension of the Mosaic Law. There's a contrast. He was the light and the life. Jesus proclaimed himself, after all of his works, he proclaimed himself to be the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Moses may have been a light, a temporary light, but he was not the light. The law was righteous and holy, Paul tells us so, but it only condemned, it only showed our guilt. It organized a society, but it couldn't save man. Jesus brought grace and truth. He brought unmerited favor of God towards men, and he brought reality itself. At one point, even his announcer, the proclaimer, John the Baptist, you remember, I personally think John wasn't confused. I think his disciples were. But you remember, at one point, he actually sent some of his disciples to find Jesus after he's in prison. I've always heard it, I've usually hear it taught that John was sitting in prison and he's wondering what's going on, but I personally don't think that he was confused, but he did send his disciples, and it says this in Matthew 11. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear, what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by my name. Jesus worked the miracles as everybody could see that only God could have done. So as we follow the outline of John, his preamble, we can use scripture as an overlay, a transparency of the logos and what we know of him. We take what John has told us and then we get to verse 17 and Jesus is there. He was the creator, he was equal with God, the giver of life, and he came in the flesh. That's what John has said. 
And then we see the ministry of Christ. This is if we were to work through the Gospel of John, we would work through these. But Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 tells us, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Just what John has said. We can echo that sentiment uh, from a little different angle. When we look at Colossians chapter 1, it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the first from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. John hit most of those points, didn't he? Right there in the preamble. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Just what John has been describing. We get the, the 2,000 years of hindsight in church history and growing up in a culture that until very recently embraced most of this, at least philosophically. These folks didn't. This was a whole new ballgame. Can you imagine being set free in your mind by hearing these things? The bondage that you had been under. The writer of Hebrews goes on. We're just about done. Thank you for your patience. He's also superior to Moses, as John said. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He makes the law of Moses obsolete. He is the mediator of a new covenant. Does that match what John said? Jesus is the final word of God because there is nothing else to be revealed. And still he was rejected, even he was rejected by all, even his own people. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he was rejected again because the God of this world has blinded his eyes. I did mention that verse. In its entirety, it says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what he's done for those who will receive him. He gave them the new birth. He gave the blind their sight. Just as Hebrews tells us, Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. I like the King James Version better. It says the author and the finisher. Peter tells us that is a faith that is incorruptible and kept by God. You can't blow it. Jesus came according to John's gospel, not just to give us life, but to give us life abundantly. And knowing these things about Christ and reflecting on them during the Advent season, do you feel that you have an abundant life? With all of the things that can go wrong, all of the things that you know about Jesus Christ, is your life abundant? tells us no one has seen God because he was hidden. Even Moses only caught a glimpse. But you remember in John's gospel, just before he went away, Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen God. He said, don't worry about it. I'm going away. But I told you I'll be back for you. I wouldn't have told you I'm going to come back if I wasn't going to do that, would I? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then they panicked. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, I am the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen him. I mean, you know, Philip and Thomas get a bad rap. I mean, they were all there. They only asked the question everybody else was asking. One more thing we get a look at. 
Matthew's Gospel, chapter 29. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. and The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. We take that so lightly. We've talked about the concept of light. John develops it ad nauseum in his epistles and in his gospel. What does it say when Jesus comes back? This is scary stuff. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. Darkness will reign. When Christ comes back, he's not playing games. We've got it easy now. We're in the age of grace. That age will close someday. Do you remember how we defined the advent? Celebration of his birth? Self-reflection? Anticipation or a longing for the return of Christ? How'd John's preamble do? Does that stir those things in you? I think our time is gone. Thank you for this uh, opportunity. And as we begin to sing this last song in just a minute, what child is this? Think about the narrative of Matthew and Luke for sure, but what child was that in the manger? Was he a harmless, helpless babe? Or was he the creator and sustainer of all things who came in the flesh?